Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. My friends in Christ, I'm sure you're aware of the idiomatic expression, so-and-so brought a knife to a gunfight. The origin of the expression is contested, but the, the majority of the internet votes go for Sean Connery as Elliot Ness's mentor in The Untouchables. But if he wasn't the first, at least he's one of 20 such occurrences in the film industry. The expression suggests, what? Ignorance, lack of preparation on the part of the person in question, a knife to a gunfight. And it's really easy to get caught up with the question of armor and combat as we reflect on our text from Ephesians 6. Knives and guns, breastplates and helmets and swords. Our Sunday school children just went through this text not too long ago. And Google is filled with images of cutouts and coloring pages to illustrate all the parts of the armor that Paul lists. But I suggest that the real concern is not weapons and armor, rather the combatants and the warriors. Paul begins by describing the nature of the enemy. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Well, that's kind of part of the problem, isn't it? Because what we see is flesh and blood. That's the presenting challenge. And it's compounded by the visible nature of all the pieces of armor that he describes, even though they have spiritual connections. But what's behind it? And here Paul lists the true enemy, not flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You feel kind of the crescendo of doom there? In contrast to the next section describing our armor, we ask the question, what are the weapons of the rulers and authorities? How do the world powers and spiritual forces of evil engage us in combat? What are the devil's schemes? Well, Wenger suggests that his chief weapon against the church is false doctrine, a crafty, deceitful scheming designed to lead the children of God away from the truth by attacking it from within. Deep guile and great might are his dread arms in fight, right? We sing in a mighty fortress. And Paul warns Timothy in his second letter, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And a little later in the same letter, they're the snares of the devil. Chrysostom wrote, the devil never openly lays temptation before us. He does not mention idolatry out loud. But by his stratagems, he presents idolatrous choices to us by persuasive words and by employing clever euphemisms. Close quote. The devil also seeks to divide the church by inciting sinful anger. Earlier in the letter, Paul warned, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In Table Talk of 1538, Luther yelled in exasperation, Ah, dear God, how hostile the devil is to us. He stirs up mutual hatred even among ministers of the word. The devil always lights one fire after another. Let it be granted that we do not agree in the moral pattern of our daily life, but let there nonetheless be agreement in true doctrine. Scary stuff, right? These fires that the devil keeps lighting among us and between us. The disunity of error that wanders unheeded into heresy. The anger that clouds our recognition of true brothers and sisters in Christ. Scary stuff, indeed. But 
And this is the important part. The war is already won. You are redeemed. You've made one, reconciled to God. Go back to the opening of the letter. Speaking of the Father of glory, Paul writes, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. That's the Easter message, right? The enemy is vanquished. That's the ascension message. Our king reigns. And Paul makes it personal in chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the baptismal message. You are now a part of the generation of the righteous, to borrow last week's image from Psalm 14. It's the Pentecost message. The Holy Spirit now indwells and enlivens you. So why this panoplia, this full armor of God with which Paul begins the epilogue to his letter? Well, it's pretty simple. The war is won. But final skirmishes continue to be played out among us and final losses will be sustained. It's not just sunshine and victory parades. There is no so-called perseverance of the saints. Therefore, finally, be strengthened in the Lord, that is, in his mighty strength, so that you may be able to stand. Stand. I suggest that that's the central theme or the focus of this text. Let yourself be clothed with the full armor of God that you may be able to stand. The first mistake we often bring with this text is to regard, to assume that Christians are to take the battle to the enemy. No. We're told to stand. And one of the pieces of armor is particularly instructive in this regard. The shield of faith. If Roman armor is Paul's pattern, this is one of two shields that the soldiers would carry. A thureos, the word comes from thura, which is a door. It's big. It's two and a half feet by four feet. And remember, people were smaller back then. And there was also a bigger version that was another hand's breadth all the way around. This thing is huge. It's made out of two pieces, two layers of wood, fastened with bull's hide glue, and then it's covered with canvas, and then calfskin over the top of that. This thing is heavy. You're not gonna go running around. The key is not standing alone, though, but side by side, shield to shield, presenting a wall, in a word, to stand. Recall I said if Roman armor is Paul's pattern, but I'm not so sure. I invite you to take a little tour with me through the Old Testament. Let's start in 1 Samuel 17. Goliath had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. And then there's David, right? The little shepherd boy. In appealing to the armor of God, 
Paul may be alluding to the classical belief that a champion's armor brought strength and victory to those who wore it. Saul offers his armor to David, perhaps reflecting the glowing rivalry between the two of them to gain some credit should David prevail in Saul's armor. David tries it on and then refuses, saying, I've not tested them. And when he finally confronts Goliath, he does so with these words. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. The name, the power of the God of Israel could very well be Paul's point in writing to the Ephesians. But there's more. Consider the Old Testament roots of the pieces of armor that Paul actually does name. Isaiah chapter 11, speaking about the root of Jesse, which of course is the infant Jesus, he writes, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and the faithfulness the belt of his loins. That word faithfulness, amen, is also translated truth, the belt of truth. Or Isaiah 59, speaking of a redeemer that would come out of Zion, our redeemer, the prophet writes, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Two more of the pieces of God's armor that Paul lists. Or Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. We are Proverbs, portals of prayer reading this morning. Well, what would Paul have tied under our feet? The preparation of the gospel of peace. And in Psalm 35, David appeals to Yahweh to bear his arms in our defense, writing, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler for my help. A shield, turning away, extinguishing the flaming arrows of the evil one. Well, that's five out of six. That leaves the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The Word. Recalling John's prologue, the Word became flesh. Listen to what Jerome wrote about this text. From what we read of our Lord, our Savior, throughout the Scriptures, it is manifestly clear that the whole armor of Christ is the Savior himself. It is he whom we are asked to put on. It is the same thing to say, put on the whole armor of God and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Winger writes, the great mystery of Ephesians 6 is that God bestows his own armor on his people. Since the Christian is mystically in Christ, this armor, the armor of God, is ours in baptism. Recall Galatians 3, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The key verbs in our text are all passive. Be strengthened. Let yourselves be clothed. Our translation and our self-reliance, here's active voice, but baptism, the armoring remains God's work and God's armor. His son and every piece of it is a divine virtue bestowed on us in baptism that's spelled out in this letter. Ephesians 4.21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, the belt of truth. Ephesians 4.24, the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and, and holiness, the breastplate of righteousness. Ephesians 4.3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of the peace, what is under our feet, the shoes of peace. 
Ephesians 5, 4, 5, the shield of faith is the trio of one Lord, one faith, one baptism. In Ephesians 2, 8, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, the helmet of salvation. And finally, Ephesians 5, 26, that he might sanctify her, that is the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Paul's epilogue is an admonition to return ever again to the word of God, to immerse oneself in it, and thereby to find a refuge against the devil. Though the battle is the Lord's, he works not only for, but through his soldiers, you and I, all the baptized. It is a message of great joy to receive the manifold gifts of baptism and to stand, to stand firm in the faith of Christ which is why we're here in the divine service, a time and place to be clothed, to stand together in the full armor of God, to ward off the schemes of the devil, to combat false doctrine through right teaching, disunity by celebrating the unity of this altar. And it's a time and place for prayer, which is how the text closes. Paul appeals to us to pray for all the saints, and to pray also for me, he writes, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, to include ourselves in Paul's request, that we may open our mouths to proclaim that same mystery of the gospel, to pray for those who are enduring persecution for that gospel throughout all the world. In baptism, God has clothed us with his armor, with his son. Therefore, let us stand firm. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.